It was a warm, humid afternoon in late May when a black car drove up in front of the store and parked. Roy was behind the counter by the register, laughing and telling Oswald that when he had come in that morning, Jack had had his foot stuck in a fly swatter. Betty Kitchen was over in the produce department examining the potatoes. When the man in the white shirt and dark, shiny pants walked in and stood looking around the store, Roy looked up. Can I help you find something? The man wiped his brow and the back of his neck with a handkerchief and said, Yeah, I'll take something cold to drink if you have it. It's a hot one out there. Roy pointed to the drink box. Help yourself. Thanks, the man said. Roy didn't know why, but he had a strange feeling about the guy, so he looked out the window and saw that his car was from Montgomery, the state capital, and it had an official state seal on the door. This guy was not lost or just stopping in for a drink. He was here on some sort of official business. While the man was looking in the box with his back turned, Roy slowly walked around and stood in front of the photograph taped against the side of the cash register. The man came over with his drink. I wonder if you could help me out. I'm trying to locate a Mrs. Tammy Suggs. I understand that she and her family used to live around here. When Betty Kitchen heard the name Suggs, she started throwing potatoes in her bag a mile a minute. Roy leaned back up against the cash register, crossing her arms, his arms, and thought out loud, Hmm, Suggs, Suggs. Nope, doesn't ring a bell. In the meantime, Oswald had slowly floated away from the cash register back into the store and was pretending to be looking for something on the shelf. Roy took a toothpick out of his pocket, looked at it, then put it in his corner of his mouth and calmly asked, Why are you trying to locate the Suggs woman? Um, any special reason? The man said, I'm really looking for the little girl we were told that she had in her possession. All of a sudden, Jack started running around his plastic wheel and ringing his bells like crazy, as if he too understood the danger of the moment. The man continued, I'm looking on behalf of her father. He took a piece of paper out of his pocket and read, a James Douglas Casey who left her, left her in custody of the Suggs family. We have this area on file as their last known location. Hmm, said Roy and turned around. Hey, Miss Kitchen, does the name Suggs ring a bell with you? Never heard of them, Betty said as she moved on to the squash. Roy called out in the back of the store. Hey, Mr. Campbell, do you know any Suggs family that used to be live around here? Had a little girl uh, with them? Oswald, who had been standing frozen in one spot, staring at a can of pork and beans, said, Suggs? No, the only family that might have been them moved to Mexico. I think they said they were going to Juarez, Juarez, or something like that. One of those places down there. Mexico, the man asked. Are you sure they said Mexico? Yeah, said Oswald, picking up a can of butter beans, pretending to read the label. They told me they weren't coming back either. Some trouble with the law or something. Huh, said the man. About that time, Claude came in the door carrying a bucket of fish, and Roy immediately said, Well, hello, Mr. Underwood. How are you today? And cleared his throat. Maybe you can help us out. This gentleman here is looking for a girl that lived back up in the woods with a family named Suggs. Mr. Campbell remembers there was a family back there with a little girl that took off and went to Mexico. Uh, isn't that right, Mr. Campbell? That's right, said Oswald, who was now in the breakfast cereal section. Claude had figured out something was wrong the minute Roy called him Mr. Underwood. He put the bucket of fish up on the counter and said, I hate to disagree with you, Oswald, but I heard those folks you are talking about say they were headed out to Canada. The man looked at him. Canada? Claude took his cap off and scratched his head. Yeah, as recall, they said they were going up to Quebec. Maybe you're right, said Oswald, picking up a box of blue diamond stove matches. I knew it was somewhere that began with a Q. Claude said, no, wait a minute. Now that I think about it, it could have been Mexico. I know it was one of those places, but if you, if I were you, I'd try looking in Mexico first. Oh, brother, the man sighed. By the time I go through all the red tape down there, the kid will be grown. 
So, said Roy, as casually as he could, even managing a yawn, the father wants the girl back. The man took a swig of his coke and shook his head. No, not really. The father's dead. He fell off the back of a truck a couple of months ago. The grandmother claims that she's too old to take care of the little girl, so she signed her over to us. And now all I have to do is find her. Well, who is us? asked Roy. The state of Alabama. She's an official ward of the state now. At that moment, Betty Kitchen glanced out the window and saw Patsy coming down the street, headed straight for the front door. Betty immediately grabbed her sack of groceries and swept her way past the men at the cash register. I'll pay you tomorrow, she said, and she was out the door. With her sack in one hand, she snatched Patsy up off the ground with the other and had her heading back to Francis's in less than five seconds. Betty had not been an emergency room nurse for nothing. She could move fast when she had to. The man in the store who had missed the entire episode continued to complain about his job. I waste half my life running up and down the roads trying to track these people down. And he stopped in mid-sentence. What are those bells I'm hearing? Roy said, oh, it's just a bird I've got back there. Oh, he said. Say, said Roy, just out of curiosity, what would happen to her when you do find her? Well, she, he said, looking around at all the mounted fish and animals on the wall, being she is, has no li other living relatives, she most likely be sent to a state home until she's 18. Oswald flinched when he heard that. Just the thought of Patsy being raised in a state home almost made him sick to his stomach. The man walked over, looked into the bucket, and said, nice fish. Then he put his empty bottle on the counter and sighed, well, thanks for your help. But from what you fellows tell me, it doesn't look likely that we'll find that little girl anytime soon. You try tracking somebody down in Mexico or in Canada. He then asked Roy what he owed for the Coke. Oh, nothing, said Roy. I'm always happy to accommodate a government man. Much to oblige, he said, and handed Roy his card. My name is Brent Boone. That's my numbers on the bottom. Call me if you hear anything. Roy said, yeah, we sure will, Mr. Boone. Boone went to the door, muttering to himself, Mexico, of all the places. Then he turned around at the door and said, well, wish me luck, fellas. God knows I'll need it. Yeah, said Roy, good luck. And I'll, they all watched him drive away. Roy picked up the phone to call Francis as soon as they were, as far as they were concerned. From that day on, Patsy was officially theirs. And Oswald walked home that night, grinning from ear to ear. Patsy Casey was her name. She was Irish, just like him. As the summer progressed, it seemed everything was looking up. Oswald continued to feel well, and the dotted Swiss luncheon was a huge success. The dotted Swiss ladies, who tended to lord it over the polka dots as, so, as far as their needlework work was concerned, had been very impressed with the potholders, and Francis could tell they were green with envy over the tomato soup. Not only had the luncheon been a hit, Patsy was very happy. She had a brand new job. In the past, when asked, Roy had taken Jack out and done a, a few little shows with him for local schools or church bazaars to raise money. But the next time he and Jack were asked to do a show, Roy asked Francis if Patsy could come along. She said yes. She thought it was a fine idea. After that, whenever he and Jack did a show, he started taking Patsy along as his assistant. Francis even bought her a special red striped dress to wear to match Roy's red and white striped jacket and straw hat. Oswald went with them and helped set up chairs for the performance. Roy could start the show with Patsy standing beside him and Jack perched on his finger. Come on, come all, come and see the amazing redbird of Baldwin County. He walks, he talks, he crawls on his belly like a snake. The only redbird in capacity, captivity, that actually knows his own name. And now my lovely assistant, Miss Patsy, and I will demonstrate. Is your name Jack? The bird would bob up and down as if he were agreeing. Yes, he says, absolutely amazing. But wait, now you might think a dumb 
a poor dumb bird would not know his right from his left, but observe the amazing redbird of Baldwin County. At this point, Patsy would hold out her right finger and Jack would land on it. That is correct, sir. And now the left, Jack would fly over to her left hand. Absolutely amazing. The only red bird in America, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls of all ages, that can tell me exactly what I have hidden here in my hand. And then the bird would walk up her arm to her shoulder and nudge her ear. And what did he say the object was, Miss Patsy? He would lean down while Patsy whispered something to him. The bird has said, sunflower seeds. Roy then opened his hand to reveal about 10 shiny black sunflower seeds. He is absolutely correct yet again, ladies and gentlemen. I can hardly believe it myself. Then Patsy would pretend the bird said something else in her ear and tug on Roy's jacket. And Roy would hold up his hand and say, wait a moment, ladies and gentlemen, the bird has spoken again. Then Patsy would whisper again to Roy. Aha, said Roy. The amazing red bird of Baldwin County says he would like to demonstrate his powers of detection. Very well. At this time, I will hide certain objects and test his abilities. Please turn your back, Miss Patsy, while I hide the objects. Patsy would turn away with Jack as Roy would make a big show out of hiding seeds in all of his pockets. Later, of course, Jack, who was a glutton for sunflower seeds, amazed the audience as he crawled in and out of all of Roy's pockets and found every one. After the shows, children would come up and try to talk to Patsy, but Roy noticed that she seemed shy and afraid of other children. Frances saw it too, and it worried her. She tried to invite a few children over to the house to play with Patsy, but it was no good. All Patsy wanted to do was play with Jack. Frances wondered if, in the past, children had been mean to her because of her leg. The first time she had bathed her, she had surprised to see how badly twisted her little body was. She just hoped, when Patsy went to school in the fall, that the other children would not make fun of her. Claude heard the red fish were biting and had gone all the way up the river over to Perdido Bay. As he was coming home up the back side of the river late that afternoon, he heard somebody yelling, Help! 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 He saw two men standing up in a shiny, brand new, blue and white, 22-foot boat in the middle of the river, frantically waving. He throttled down his motor and pulled up alongside them. Hey, fellows, what's up? Thank God you came along. We've been standing out here all day, the man said. The other man said we must have hit something because the motor just died and wouldn't start again, and we've been drifting around for hours. We must have drifted five miles. Claude asked, why didn't you just use your paddles? They didn't give us any, the man said. Claude calmly pointed over at the right side of the boat. Look in that compartment down there. There should be a couple. The larger man opened the long side panel and saw two paddles. Oh, where did you fellows come from? We started out the Grand Hotel at Point Clear. Where are we now? Uh, you're all the way to Lost River, about 15 miles south. How are we going to get all the way back? Well, let me take a look at this thing. Claude maneuvered around the back of the boat and quickly assessed the situation. You've got your motor all twisted up with silt and sand and mud. Can it be fixed? Oh, sure, but we've got to pull it out of the water to do it. He threw them a rope and towed them back to his house. When they pulled up to the dock, Claude looked at the setting sun and said, Well, it'll be too dark to get you to the hotel by boat tonight, but I'll get Butch to drive you back, and the hotel can send someone to get your boat tomorrow. As the two men gathered up their expensive fishing gear and heavy rods and reels, Claude chuckled. What were you boys aiming to catch out there today? Embarrassed that they had to be towed in, they tried to sound like they knew what they were doing. Oh, speckled trout, redfish, I hear they're running pretty good this time of the year. Uh-huh, said Claude. About the only thing that you are liable to catch with all that stuff you've got there is a shark, maybe a whale. He opened a box and pulled out a string of the biggest bass, redfish, and speckled trout they'd ever seen. Come on up to the house and I'll call Butch. Thanks, that's mighty nice of you. 
By the way, said the larger one, my name is Tom and this is Richard. I'm Claude Underwood. Nice to meet you. As the three of them headed up the yard, Claude said, you boys down here on vacation? No, said Tom. We're attending a medical convention at the hotel, but we thought we might try to get a little fishing in while we're here. When they got to the house, Sybil fixed them some coffee, and a few minutes later, Butch came in the door whistling. He was used to being called to take an amateur fisherman back home. It gave him a chance to have some fun. Hey, guys, I hear you got lost. That's why we call it Lost River, because if you're up this far, you must be lost. And as always, he laughed at his own joke, thinking it was the funniest thing he'd ever heard. When they were leaving, Claude said, how long are you here for? Tom said, just three more days. Unfortunately, this one was shot. Uh, he looked over at Sybil. Excuse me, uh, ma'am. Sybil laughed. Don't worry. I'm married to a fisherman, so I've heard that kind of language before. Claude, who felt sorry for them, said, if you want to do some fish, more fishing, come back tomorrow and I'll take you out and show you a few good spots. Later, when Butch was driving them back to the hotel, he said, you might not know it, but you just met the best fisherman in the state. If he's offered to take you out, you need to take him up on it. Thanks, we will, they said. <clears throat> The next afternoon, Butch picked up and drove down, them down, back down to the river to where Claude was waiting for them at the dock. Hey, boys, get in, he said. They climbed into his old green 14-foot flat-bottom boat powered by a small five-horse Johnson motor and headed out. Claude handed them both a simple rod and reel and explained his method. He only used this little guy here. He held up a red and white uh, vamp spook. Now I modified it a bit. I take the front lip off and it runs deeper for you or else I just use a little uh, lead head jig. That's all you'd really need. <clears throat> but the day was over. The two men were so excited they could hardly believe it. They had caught more fish and learned more about, the, about fishing in one day than they had all their lives. They thought Claude must have, been some sort of, must have had some sort of secret knowledge about fish. Claude always was a philosophical set. Nah, there's no secret to it. Either they're biting or they ain't. The men came down the next two afternoons and had a wonderful time going up and down the road with Claude, and he got a kick out of the two, who were obviously city boys, full of enthusiasm and excitement every time they caught something. On the last day they were to be there, they tried to pay him for being their guide, but Claude said, no, you don't owe me a thing. Tom said, we'd love to pay you for your time. Thank you, but no, it was my pleasure. Are you sure? Yes, I'm sure. You fellows don't owe me a dime, but I am going to ask you to do me a favor. If we can, sure, what is it? I know you fellows are both doctors, and I wondered if you would take a look at a little girl for me and tell me what you think. In the past few days, Claude had found out that the two men were at the hotel for the Southeastern Convention of Elbow and Shoulder Surgeons. He did not know if they could help Patsy, but he thought it might be worth a try. So he told Francis to have Patsy up at his house that afternoon just in case they agreed to see her. Francis dressed Patsy in her best dress and brought her over, and they sat in the living room with Sybil and Butch and waited for them. When the two men walked in with Claude, he introduced them to Francis and then to Patsy. Tom leaned down and shook his her hand. Hi, Patsy, how are you? Then he said, honey, could you do me a big favor? Would you walk across the room for me? Patsy looked at Francis, who smiled and motioned for her to do it. Patsy walked across the room and stopped. Tom whispered something on his to his friend and said, now come on back for me, she did. That's fine. Thank you, honey, he said. After a few more minutes of small talk, they said their goodbyes and walked out the door. <clears throat> Claude and Butch followed them out, and they stood in the yard and talked. Tom said, Mr. Underwood, unfortunately, that sort of birth injury is not our specialty. We deal mostly with sports in injuries. I wish we could help, but that little girl needs a specialist. Well, what kind of specialist? 
She needs a pediatric orthopedic surgeon, said Richard. Kids' bones are tricky, and you need someone with a lot of skill and expertise in that area. Tom looked at his friend and said a name, Sam Glickman. Richard nodded. Yeah. Later that night on the, the phone rang, Mr. Underwood, this is Tom. Listen, if you can get that little girl up here to the hotel before 8 o'clock in the morning, Sam says he will take a quick look at her before he has to catch his plane back to Atlanta. Claude called Frances and told her to have Patsy ready and that Butch would pick them up at 6.30 and drive them over to the hotel. When Frances told Patsy they were going for a ride in the morning, she asked if Mr. Campbell could go with them. Well, if you want him to, I'll call and see. When she phoned and asked, Oswald said, if Patsy wants me to come, I'll be there. When he hung up, he was so pleased that Patsy had wanted him to go along, he felt like a million bucks. Would he go? Why, well, he would have gone to the moon and back if she had asked. The next morning, Butch drove the three of them all the way over to Point Clear, to the Grand Hotel in Mobile Bay. At 7.30, wearing only her underwear and her Dr. Pepper hat, Patsy was lying on a banquet table in the main dining room being examined by Dr. Samuel Glickman. Frances and Oswald both cringed as they watched the doctor push and pull her leg back and forth, up and down. Then he turned her over and felt her all the way up her spine, talking to her the whole time he was examining her. You know, Patsy, uh, I have a little granddaughter about your age named Colby. And she, do you know what she told me? Does that hurt? Patsy made a face like it did, but she said, oh, no, sir. Then he turned her back, turned her back over. She said, granddaddy, I've already had two boyfriends. Can you just imagine that? As he sat her up and had her bend over to the left as far as she could and then to the right, he asked, do you have a boyfriend? No, sir, she said. Yes, you do, Patsy, Francis said. You told me the other day that Jack was your boyfriend. Tell the doctor about Jack, honey. After it was all over, the doctor looked at his watch, picked up a suitcase and said to Francis, come walk to the car with me, Mrs. Cleaverton. Then he turned and smiled and waved. Goodbye, Patsy. He, walked as they, he talked as they walked through the lobby. Mrs. Cleaverton, I would need to do x-rays, of course, but from what I felt, I would say that her pelvis and right hip were broken in four, maybe five places, and whoever did it never bothered to set the bones straight. Does she complain much about pain? Frances, running to keep up with him, said, no, doctor, she's never said a word about pain. Well, I don't know why she hasn't, because I know it has to hurt. Those bones are pressing on the nerves in her hip and spine, and the more she grows, the worse it will get. Has she gotten the Got, he got into the waiting car. Francis blurted out the one question they all wanted answered. Can anything be done? Dr. Glipman looked up. Mrs. Cleaverton, it's not a question of can anything be done? Something has to be done. He handed her her card. Called my office and set up an appointment, he said, and the car drove away. Francis went back inside and found them all waiting in the lobby for her. He wants to see her in his office, she said. Two weeks later, they were swerving in and out of Atlantic traffic. Well... Francis and Oswald reached back and forth over Patsy trying to read the map. Finally, they found the medical building and made it in on time. <clears throat> Francis said, how anyone can find their way in or out of this town is a mystery to me. After a series of x-rays were looked at and all the tests were done, Dr. Glickman called Francis and Oswald into his office while a nurse took Patsy down to the cafeteria for something to eat. With a malformation as severe as this, he said, if we let it go uncorrected any longer, what will happen is that she will begin to lose mobility and eventually she won't be able to walk at all. Frances grabbed Oswald's hand for support. Oh dear. And as she continues to grow, it will begin to affect her central nervous system as well. The sooner we can reset those bones and relieve her skeletal and muscular area from all the stress and strain, the better. But we are talking about two, maybe three separate surgeries. With a child that young and frail, it's a pretty serious undertaking. It's going to require a lot of strength and stamina on her part to get through it. Francis was alarmed. You don't mean she could die, do you? 
With any major surgery, there's always that possibility, of course. But from what I have seen, she seems like a pretty happy little girl with a lot to live for. But, but let me be clear. She will need a lot of emotional support from all of us for the long haul. And even after going through it all, there are still no guarantees she will heal properly. Oh, dear, said Francis again. Having said all that, in my opinion, it has to be done. I just want you to know up front that it's going to be a long, hard process, no matter what the results. Oswald asked, will it be expensive? I wish I could say no, Mr. Campbell, but yes, it will be terribly expensive. He glanced down at the picture of his granddaughter on his desk, and then he flipped through his calendar and looked over his glasses. I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll waive my surgical fees. That ought to help some. If you promise to have her here with a few more pounds on her by the end of July, we can have her first surgery the morning of August 2nd. Francis told the doctor that they would be there and that Patsy would have more pounds on her if she had to feed her 20 times a day. How they would get the rest of the money was another question, but she did not tell him that. For the next month, everybody up and down the street plied Patsy with cookies and candies and as much ice cream as she could eat. They were determined to get those extra pounds on her by the end of July. But the main problem was going to be the money. Even without the doctor's fees, it was estimated that the long hospital stay plus the following months of therapy would run over $100,000. Francis and Mildred had a little saved, but it was not nearly enough. The Lost River Community Association had several fundraisers, and a large jar that said the Patsy Fund sat by the cash register in the grocery store. Pretty soon, as more people found out about it, other organizations began to help them as well. When Elizabeth, their friend over in Lillian, who was president of their sister group, the Mystic Order of the Royal Dotted Swiss, heard about it, her group held a bake and rummage sale. Lost River had a huge fish fry at the community hall every Saturday, thanks to Claude Underwood, and the people came from all over the county for that. As word spread, and courtesy of Butch's friends, the Elks Club over in Alberta decided to have a fundraiser. They planned a barbecue, and everybody in Lost River attended, along with hundreds of other people from all over the county. When Oswald got there, he was in for a surprise. The members of the Alabama Accordion Association had donated their services and were giving a free concert in the park to raise money. They were up on the bandstand dressed in a lederhosen. Mr. Krause spotted Oswald and waved while playing the beer barrel polka. Francis and Mildred and Patsy joined them, and they sat in the wooden chairs and listened along with the rest of the people. Patsy was on her second cotton candy when suddenly Oswald saw something that made his blood run cold. He had just spotted Brent Boone the government man sitting in the front row across from them, and he was looking right at Patsy. Oswald felt his ears turn red. After a few minutes, Boone stood up and walked over to the large wooden barrel that had the Patsy fund written across it, threw in $10, and headed up the aisle right toward him. As he walked past Oswald, who had stopped breathing, he looked down at him and said out of the side of his mouth, Mexico, my butt, and kept going. As August approached, Oswald wanted to do something for Patsy, but of course he had no money. But there was one thing he could try. Even if he only got a few dollars, it might help. Butch drove him over to the big grand hotel on, on the bay in Point Clear. The last time they had been there with Patsy, he had noticed an art gallery in the lobby. Today, he mustered up all of his courage, walked in, and a nice lady looked at his watercolors one at a time, but did not offer an opinion. When she finished, she asked, how much are you asking for these, Mr. Campbell? He was thrown completely. He had never sold anything in his life, much less his own work. So he said, why don't you name a price? She looked at them again and counted. You have 18 painting here, paintings here. Is that right? Yes. She looked again and then said, I can offer you $250. You're kidding, he said, thrilled beyond belief that she was willing to buy them for so much money. I wish I could offer you more, Mr. Campbell. These are just excellent. 
but we're just a small shop. No, that's fine. I'll take it. When she handed him the check, she said, I'd be interested in seeing anything else you have, Mr. Campbell. When he got outside and looked at the check, he almost fainted. She had meant $250 a piece. By the end of July, almost all the money they needed had been raised, and everyone was uh, pretty optimistic that the rest would be there on time. The morning before Patsy was to go to Alabama for her operation, Oswald and Roy had planned to have a little going-away party for her up at the store. Roy came in around 6.45 a.m. to get ready to open and whistled for Jack. Hey, buddy, your girlfriend is coming to see you. No answer. What have you gotten yourself into today, you nutty bird? You better not be in the marshmallows again. I don't have time to give you another bath. He wandered around whistling and looking for the bird. And when he walked toward the front of the store, he saw Jack over in the corner on the floor by the produce, his favorite place to scavenge. What do you have down there? You better be pecking at the tomatoes again. Mildred will be after you for sure. He went over and looked. Jack was lying on his side. What are you doing, you silly thing? When he picked him up, Jack's body felt stiff, and his usually bright eyes were strangely dull and glassed over. He looked at the bird again. Then he suddenly hit then it suddenly hit Roy like a ton of bricks. Jack was dead.